So um, I've told this story many times that um, I, I have a history of not showing up, specifically when I was in school. I didn't show up for um, around 50% of it, and, uh, and I called them Cody personal days because I felt like I just really needed to explore me some more as a 16-year-old, and so I would just skip school most of the time. And, um, and I, I came across this story that I just thought was fascinating, is I, I believe there is a girl who probably missed more school, or at least was late to more school days than I was. And, uh, and so one of the things that they have to do is this girl was just constantly late. And she posted pictures. I saw this article. She posted a wall, and it has all of her tardy slips on it, okay? And it was literally like covered in this thing. This girl, I don't think, ever showed up on time. And so every time that she would come to school, um, she would have to fill out a little thing that says, here is why I am late. And it would have a little reason on there. And, um, and then she would post it online. And eventually, um, people started to take notice because the reasons that she put were actually pretty humorous um, because she wasn't just going to say, like, ah, I slept in. Um, so she started writing in all these reasons of why she was late. And so I'm going to give you a couple of them that she wrote down. One of the reasons was... Um, uh, she put, uh, in this day and age, we shouldn't need labels like late. Um, you can't tell me how to live my life. That was one of them. YOLO, or hashtag YOLO, excuse me. Uh, there was a freak yachting accident. Uh, this one's good. My father left my mother for an air hostess seven years ago. Do you expect me to get over that emotional trauma overnight? <laughs> wow. I don't even think it's true, but it's funny. Um, Sarah Palin and I got into a Twitter war and I couldn't leave and let her win. Um, I was sticking it to the man. My meth lab caught fire. <laughs> my, my bed is more comfortable than your school will ever be. Uh, I, had beat, um, I, I had to beat up my younger brother for saying swag. Um, <laughs> I had to, <laughs> Cameron. Uh, I had to stop, collaborate, and listen. Um, <laughs> I did not choose the late life. The late life chose me. And finally, I was fighting Al-Qaeda. So I thought those were great. She has like a bunch of them online. Some of them were super inappropriate that were even funnier, but I couldn't share them, at least not a good conscience. So um, you may be one of, like if you're, everybody's a part of a group, and I feel like every group has the friend that is like the I'm on my way friend. You know that friend? where it doesn't matter, like, we're okay, we're leaving at six. Be at my house, six o'clock, on the dot, let's go. And it's like 6.05, and then you shoot them a text message, like, hey, where are you at? And like, oh, I'm on my way. You know they haven't even gotten in the shower yet, right? They haven't even begun to get ready. And you might be laughing right now because either you know who that friend is or you are that friend, right? And I know you're that friend because I saw you coming in during worship. You were like, oh yeah, what time does this start at? I'm on my way, save me a seat. Okay, everybody has that friend. Everybody has the friend that is always on their way, that is never on time, constantly late. In fact, um, I have some of those friends, I'm not gonna uh, call anybody out, but Travis is my friend. And um, if you don't know Travis, he's the high school pastor here. And, uh, and his wife is even worse. And so when we are considering um, meeting them somewhere, we'll give them like 30 minutes before we're actually planning on meeting them because we just know. We know how it's going to be, right? We know. Like if we want them to be there at 6, we'll tell them 5.30, so they'll show up at 6. We just, we've, we've just, we've, we've, we understand that they are our late friend. And, uh, and it's kind of humorous, and sometimes it's a little bit annoying and whatever. We have to deal with it. But here's the problem. 
As Christians, and you don't even have to be a Christian, you could just believe in God, um, we have had not only the friend who is late, but a God who seems to be late. Like we're trying to uh, accomplish something, or maybe we have a problem and we're praying and we're like, all right, God, I need you to show up. Here's what I need you to do. Oh yeah, by the way, I need you to do it by Tuesday, okay? If you could make it happen by Tuesday, that would be fantastic. And then Tuesday comes and it goes and nothing happens. And this is a problem that all of us wrestle with, is it's not just you who oftentimes feels like God is not listening or God is inattentive or he just plain doesn't show up. It happens to all of us. All of us wrestle with this idea that God seems to not be uh, on time. And if it's a really serious thing, like we're wrestling with, maybe it's a, an illness or a tragedy or something like that, we will begin to ask some pretty profound questions. When God doesn't show up, when our friend or family member has cancer, we start to ask, wait a minute, God, are you loving? Do you care? Do you even exist? And these are some pretty, pretty big questions. In fact, this could be a turning point in our faith journey. Is some of us may walk away from faith because God didn't show up when we thought he was going to show up. And the story that we're going to be reading today in Matthew 9 talks about God's timing. And if you don't know um, kind of anything about the Bible, we're going through this book called Matthew, and Matthew is one of the four Gospels. And the Gospels are in the New Testament of the Bible, the later half of the Bible, and, uh, and it talks about Jesus' life and ministry. And we have four accounts. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptics. And they give us a lot of the same stories and information about Jesus, but sometimes from a different perspective. And so these are, are four different accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Some of them have um, overlapping. The three specifically have overlapping. And so we're going to be able to, in our story, we're going to be able to get even more information than what we see in the Matthew account. Because we're going to be able to jump over to the Mark account, which has uh, a longer, more detailed version of what happens here. And so we'll be able to kind of get some more details out of it. Okay, so if you have your Bibles or a Bible app or whatever, you can get into Matthew 9. We're going to be starting at verse 18. Here's what it says. Uh, while he was, okay, so by the way, let me give you a little context if you were not here before, is um, Jesus is discussing with some religious people about religious practices, and he's in the middle of this dialogue talking to them, and then this next thing takes place. Okay, so Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. So we don't get it from this story, but again, if you look at the Mark account of this, we find out a little bit more about this leader. So this leader's name um, is Jairus, and he is a synagogue leader, and he's probably a pretty influential guy. He's well-known. Um, in fact, he probably is fairly wealthy as well. And so this guy comes up to Jesus, who's well-known, who's a rich dude, who's a religious leader, and he says, my daughter has just died. Now, circumstances do not get any more serious than this. As a parent especially, I, I can just, this is the worst thing that could happen. This is, in this life, this is the worst thing that can happen. And so, if you think about the worst thing that could happen in your life, this is happening here. And we're not really sure, because um, the, the original Greek isn't clear. It could either mean that she has just died or she is on the brink of death. Either way, it's a big problem. And I think what's interesting about this is we're already going to, and through the story we're going to get more, but we're already getting insight into what the nature of faith is. It's through the story we can learn things about our own faith and how we, how we wrestle with faith. So we, we learn here, right off the bat, that our faith is oftentimes dependent upon our circumstances, both positive and negative. Is our faith is not just something that we rationally come to believe. Now, I believe that um, that 
Christianity is very reasonable. There's arguments. In fact, I believe it's the most reasonable faith position or worldview um, that you can have. But we have to also understand that our faith is not fully dependent upon whatever arguments or whatever reason or whatever evidence we may have. A lot of our faith is dependent, good or bad, on the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And so if you look at this leader, you know that he was already aware of Jesus, right? He already knew who Jesus was because he knew who to come to when he was in trouble. Is he goes, look, I've been hearing about this teacher, Jesus. I'm a religious leader. Clearly, I know what the implications are if he really can do these things. And yet, he hasn't bothered to dialogue with Jesus. It's not until his circumstances dramatically change um, that he decides, I think I need to go and find out what this Jesus is all about. Well, this is kind of a lot of our story as well is we don't really begin our faith journey until our circumstances change. Oftentimes, people either come to faith or they lose faith because of their change of circumstances, because of something that's happening within their life. And here's what I struggle with, because I get it. My faith oftentimes is dependent upon uh, a lot of factors. Sometimes my faith is how much is dependent upon how much sleep I got the night before, right? Like I will have a just an exhausting day, and I'll be like I'll be like going through my day. Like Sunday nights are the worst for me. I shared this with some people. Sunday nights are the nights that are the worst for me. When I drive home after a long weekend, especially one where I've preached for um, the like five services or whatever, um, when I drive home, I'm like half atheist when I'm driving home, right? <laughs> Because I'm like so tired and I'm so exhausted. And I'm just like oh, emotionally drained. And I'm like, God, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're there. But wow, give me some Oreos. You know, like I'm dying here right now. And they're so dependent. Our faith is so dependent upon our circumstances. But this is really one important to remember. Because as we're struggling, as we're struggling with doubt and as we're struggling with faith and we're wrestling with it, we have to realize that it's not just an intellectual battle that we're having. It's a physical battle. It's a circumstance, circumstantial battle. It's something um, that is, is multifaceted. Another thing that I realize about this is um, this kind of makes my faith and your faith look kind of selfish. Because think about this. My faith is circumstantial when it's about me. Like my faith is either weaker or stronger based on what happens in my life. I very rarely see something happen to someone that I don't know. Like I'm watching a news story and I'm like, Wow, that's, that, that's horrible that that happened. Anyway, let's go get dinner. You know, like I just, my faith is very rarely shaken because of something that I see on TV. But yet if that exact same thing happened to me, then my faith would be shaken. And this is like a really selfish way in which to have faith, is if everything is going well for me, then my faith is fine. But if things are not going well for me, my faith is shaken. But if it's going bad for you, I'll pray for you, Right? That seems to be a pretty selfish view of faith that we have. But this is the faith that I think all of us have to wrestle with. So let's continue on. Um, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. And so the little statement that he gives here gives us insight into the degree of faith that this man has. Is He doesn't have a whole lot of faith, right? We see other stories of people coming to Jesus, the centurion, in which he says, hey, I know that you can heal, not even being at the scene, just by the power of your word. If you say it, it's going to be done. And this guy goes, look, I've heard that you can heal. I don't really know how this works, but I've run out of options. And so could you come and like do whatever you do, lay hands on my daughter, pray for her, whatever you got to do, but please, I'm desperate. I'm out of options. I need you to come and to show up. 
And so the first question that I would be asking if this were me in the story or maybe even um, just someone who's observing this is, well, why, why does God allow this to happen in the first place? Right, And the problem of evil is a problem that all of us wrestle with, and we've talked about it before, but I think it's a problem that we constantly have to review because it's something that is so, um, becomes so real when we experience tragedy in our own life, is we begin to question our faith. And so the first thing I have is, well, God, why do you allow this to happen? And I think through this story, we can find out a lot of reasons why God may allow evil in the world. So the first thing I see here is, is that even though this, this seems to be a, a, senseless, a senseless evil in which I can't understand an explanation. I can't understand why this is happening. But the first thing that I see is, is that it is allowing a person who does not have faith to come to faith. See, it's oftentimes not when life is going really, really well that we come to Jesus, right? It's like, I'm rich, I need Jesus. That's, that is not, that has never happened, okay? If that were true, Hollywood would be full of Christians, right? But that is not happening because it's not through our success. It's not when we are winning that we feel like we need Jesus oftentimes. It's almost always when we feel like life is beating us up. Oftentimes it's when we hit rock bottom that we finally admit we need Jesus. And so when I look at this religious leader, he's known about Jesus. He didn't want anything to do with Jesus until something happens in his life in which he cannot control. He can't fix this. His money cannot take care of this. He's come to the end of himself, and he needs someone to come in and to save him, someone to come in and to fix this situation. And so I guess one of the first things that I would say when people are struggling with the existence of God and evil and why God would allow this is because sometimes this is the only way that he can get through to us. I'm not saying this is true of everybody. Some, uh, some of the strongest believers experience tragedy. Everybody does, and we'll talk about that, but... One of the ways that God will wake us up, that will shake us out of our apathy, is that he will allow our circumstances to change, oftentimes negatively. All right, let's continue on. Verse 19, Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And so what's happening here is she is bleeding. It's probably some kind of uh, ministerial min woman problem. And um, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> ministerial. Okay. It's fine. Um, here's the deal, though. Is, is she's been struggling with this illness for 12 years, whatever it is. And, uh, and the... The, the problem with this is not only is she physically suffering, but she's, she's socially and emotionally suffering as well. Because in that context, um, she would have been seen by the pious Jews as unclean. And so she would have been an, a social outcast as well as struggling with this physical um, illness. And yet, as she um, dares to go out, and not only as a person who is physically wounded, but socially an outcast, she says, you know, I don't know how this works. And she has these like real superstitious beliefs. Like if I just, I think it's in his cloak, right? Like I think the power is in his jacket. And so if I just touch his jacket, then maybe I'll be healed. And so her theology is a little bit off. She doesn't quite understand how Jesus works. But here's the thing is, she, she has enough faith to dare out into the public and say, okay, if I can just make it to Jesus, I'm not sure how, and I have these kind of superstitious beliefs, but if I can make it to Jesus, I think he might be able to help me. Verse 22, Jesus turned and saw her and says, take heart, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. 
So this is really important learning, and this is so good for me as a person who continues to struggle with, with doubt and uncertainty, is the principle here is although this woman has this superstitious belief and she doesn't really, um, she, doesn't, she doesn't have a great faith, it doesn't matter. Jesus still meets her where she's at and heals her anyway. And so I think here's the big learning from this. It's not a perfect faith that saved us, or that saves us. It's faith in the perfect person that does. See, her faith was anything but perfect. Theologically, it was incorrect. She wasn't quite sure if it was going to work or not, but she thought there's some kind of power in this man. And yet her totally imperfect faith was enough for her to be healed. Why? Because it's not the degree of faith that we have, it's the object that we have faith in that matters. Is There's this notion that for some reason, faith is a virtue within our culture. I was watching um, this clip, and it was of Johnny Depp, and the interviewer was asking him, do you have faith? And he sat for a second, and he thought, you know, I have, yeah, I have faith in my kids. And I went, what the frick does that mean, dude? Faith in what? <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. But the interviewer was like, yeah, totally, totally, total faith in your kids, man, I get it. I'm like, I don't get it, but all right. But for some reason in our culture, we think that like, if you have faith, that's what matters. But I'm like, no, that doesn't matter. You can have all the faith in the world, but if you put your faith in the wrong thing, then your faith is going to be useless. I would rather have a tiny amount of faith that is in the right thing than an enormous amount of faith that is in the wrong thing. And so here's a, here's a little illustration that um, one of my favorite speakers, Tim Keller, says. Uh, he says this. He says, it's kind of like standing on the edge of a cliff. And there's a branch that's out there. And you have no other options. You have to jump and you have to grab onto that branch. It doesn't matter if you have the slightest bit of trust and faith that that branch is going to hold you. All that matters is that you jump and that it actually can hold you. And that's the same thing with us is whether you have the smallest amount of faith in Jesus or you have enormous amount of faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that you jump and that you trust in the right thing. Jairus' faith was also pretty small. He wasn't quite sure how this whole thing was going to work, and he thought maybe Jesus needs to be here, maybe he needs to see her, and yet Jesus still grants him uh, a miracle as well because the smallest amount of faith uh, is enough to be able to save us if it's with the right person. So if you go back to the story, um, Jairus, I got to imagine that as he is in this like total freak out mode, and rightfully so, where he's like, oh my gosh, my daughter is dying or is dead, we need to get there, and so Jesus, let's go, and then Jesus is on his way out, and then there's a lady with a cough over here, and he's like, time out, did you see she's got a cough? We should probably go take care, it's like this, it's if you went to the ER, and you were like bleeding to death, like I got shot nine times, okay? And I'm on the ground and I'm bleeding. I'm like, I'm not gonna make, I see the light. I'm not gonna make it. You know, I'm like, I need a doctor. And so the doctor's coming over and it's like, oh my goodness, we're gonna take care of you. And then there's like a little kid goes, <laughs> it's like, hold on, please. Uh, yes, did you have a cough? Did I hear, do you need a cough drop? You know, like, I mean, get over here. What the frick are you doing, dude? Like I'm dying over here. And that's pretty much what Jesus does, is he is either extremely ADD or he's cruel. Because, Jesus, we're, we're, on a, we're on a schedule here. We got kids that are dying. You need to fix this right now. And yet Jesus goes, wait, 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 wait. This girl who's been um, ill for 12 years, yeah, let's go ahead and talk to her for a moment here. What's that about? What is Jesus' deal? Well, I think Jesus is trying to, trying to teach us something is 
the main principle, and what I take away from this, uh, this story is that God's timing is definitely not our timing is that everybody has an idea of um, what timing is, right? So some of our friends, their timing is, hey, if I show up, I'm on time. Some of us say, no, 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 when we determine a time, that's when you're supposed to show up, that's on time. One of the greatest examples is if you've ever, um, if you've ever traveled internationally. Like if you ever go to a third world country, we have this principle, it's called hurry up and wait. Because as Americans, for the most part, um, we wanna be on time. And so when you say, okay, church starts at 9 a.m., we're like, okay, we'll be ready and we'll be there at 9. We show up at 9 and we're like, where is everybody? Where are they at? Yeah, they'll make it in the next couple hours. You're like, what? We said 9 o'clock. Well, that's African time. We're on a different time. It's fine. You know, you show up when you want to show up. And so people, when they start traveling internationally, we always warn them, hey, um, their time or their timing is not the same as ours. Well, can you imagine if that's the difference between us and people in Africa, what the difference between our timing and God's timing is? It's probably going to make zero sense to us whatsoever. But here's the thing. Oftentimes, God's timing is different than ours because we don't see what he sees. See, he sees not only the beginning of our life to the end of our life, but he sees the beginning of time to the end of time. He sees all of human history. He sees every human action and thought, and he is guiding it all towards a specific destination. And so we don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. We have this tiny little finite view of our own minute life, and yet we don't understand why we, we can't figure out God's timing. Well, because he's, he's got a totally different perspective. He sees things we don't see. Uh, example I usually give for this is, um, in a, if you were, have you been listening to the series up at uh, our main campus, I uh, give this illustration of um, giving my kids shots at the doctor. And so what happens is, and, and the first time was, cr- was just, it was hard, is we needed to take our kids to get their shots. And this is especially their first visit, like their first birthday in which they get a grip of shots, is um, it's down in Costa Mesa. So we'll, on our way, we'll stop by this little place called Sidecar Donuts. Maybe you've heard of it before. And we will get these kids so high off of donuts. Like their sugar rush is just insane, right? They're just like, this is the best day ever, dad. Thank you for this. And I'm like, just wait 30 minutes, son. <laughs> You're going to hate me, but here we go. And so um, they don't understand. There's nothing I can explain to them. And so we get them into the doctor's office. We strip them down into their diaper, which are like, this is also awesome. And then the doctor comes in and starts shooting them with needles. And they go, how dare you, dad? You know, they're just like, why would you, why would you do this to me? I don't understand. And here's the thing. It's because they don't get the big picture. They don't see what I see. See, I see their future. I see, uh, I see what, what could happen if we don't take care of this right now. And so I will, uh, I will subject my children to some pain because I see a bigger picture. I have the facts that they don't have. And see, God does the same thing with us. He says, you know, um, you don't have the whole story. You don't get the whole thing. You don't see the big picture. In fact, you may never see the big picture because it may not even be the picture of your life. You may be just a little piece of the puzzle and this grand picture that I'm painting. You don't have all the, all the facts. I think this is also the second answer to why God allows bad things to happen is because he sees things that we don't see. He sees the big picture. He sees where we're going. He sees how we're gonna get there. And so he uses what seems to be senseless evil Um, to get us there. All right, let's continue on. Verse 23, when Jesus entered uh, the synagogue, 
synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and the people playing pipes. So give you a little context here is um, when he goes in there and because there's all these people making noise and commotion, it's probably because they're, they're, it's because they're mourning and they're playing these uh, instruments because they're, they're, this is a part of the mourning process. In verse 24, he says, uh, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. Now, at first glance, you might be like, wait, wait, wait. So she's like in a coma, like she's taking a nap. What's, what's the deal? And what Jesus is doing here is he's giving us his perspective on death. Because he knows full well, everybody knows, it's no secret, this girl is dead. And yet, as Jesus comes in and he sees this little girl dead, he says, no, no, she's not dead, she's asleep. Which shows us how he thinks about death. He thinks that death is not a, 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 uh, an end-all, be-all. Death is just temporary. And then it continues on, but they laughed at him. I don't think it was like a laugh, funny, ha-ha, but like a laugh, like you're an idiot kind of thing. They look at Jesus and they go, Jesus, are you serious? Like you're some big miracle worker and you show up. You've, one, showed up late, and now you think that you're going to be able to raise somebody from the dead. You're out of your mind. But then 25 says this, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all the region. See, what's interesting about this is Jesus is not the first person who's been able to do miracles. We see in the scripture all the way back in the Old Testament that lots of people have been able to do miraculous things. There's prophets and apostles. We even see this after Jesus uh, ascends into heaven. Some of the apostles are able to do miraculous things as well. But here's what's different when Jesus does this. Is Jesus doesn't call upon anyone's name. So all of the prophets and apostles say, you know, in the name of the Lord or in God's name. And so they call down the power to be bestowed upon or to work through them in order to do their miracles. And Jesus doesn't call on anyone. He says, in my own authority. What he's doing here is he's not only doing a miracle, but he's saying, and the miracle worker, the person who has the power, is me. What he's really claiming to do here, or what he's really showing, is that he is God incarnate. And this is also the third answer to the problem of evil, is why does God allow bad things to happen? Well, so that his power and glory can be shown at the end. God allows certain things to happen in our life so that he can, one, reveal who he is and his power and his plan in and through us. And so as I think back on my own story and I think about why God has allowed certain things to happen in my life, it's because he wanted to use that in order to affect change in the world. He wanted to not only change me, but he wanted to change uh, other people through me. And so if you think about some of your greatest pains those pains either can be wasted or they can be used for a purpose. I remember about a, two years ago, I was watching a sermon by a famous pastor who had just experienced an enormous amount of pain and suffering. And as he was talking about it, um, he really motivated me to begin to share my pain and to begin to um, wrestle with and try to use my pain for a purpose. And what he said was, he says, you can either waste your pain, you can either harbor it and it can become bitter and you can be angry about it, or you can see that God has a purpose in this and he wants to work through you so that you can change people's lives. And so for me, and I've shared my story uh, numerous times now, but I hadn't for years before this. For me, it was this really um, dark and scary struggle that I've had with this thing called OCD and depression. 
And so for years, I struggled and I wanted to hide it and I wanted to keep it a secret and I didn't want people to know about it because I was kind of embarrassed and I should be bigger than this and better than this and I should be able to fight this. And then as I realized that God was changing me through um, this, this, this really dark time, I also realized that he wanted me to bring it to other people so that one, they could see hope, that they could have, um, that they could see that there is an end to this, that God can use this for something. In fact, one of the most powerful nights of my life as a speaker was being able to speak to a group of recovery. And it was the first place that I ever shared my, my story. And people were crying and I was like, this is crazy. And then we're all crying together. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? What is this salty discharge out of my eyes? I just don't know. And I realized it's because God wanted to use my pain. And the same is true of us. He lets bad things happen to us for sure that we can't argue with that. But we can either decide to do something with it or to let it eat us up inside. See, Jesus also does something else pretty cool in this story. When we go back to the account of Mark, um, we get a little bit more detail. In fact, it gives us the exact words that Jesus says to this little girl as he's uh, bringing her back from the dead. And, And the best translation that we can have from that language to our language, it would sound something like this. When he bends down, he grabs this girl by the hand and he says, honey, get up. And it's this sense, and it's supposed to, you're supposed to get this um, image in your mind of a father who's going in in the morning and waking up their daughter and saying, honey, it's time to get up. Let's go. We've got a bright day ahead of us. Let's get out there. Let's wake up. Here we go. And that's what Jesus is saying to this little girl. And he says this. He says to all of us, he says, listen, if I have you by the hand, just like I have this little girl by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. And so when we are struggling with pain and suffering and trying to understand God's purpose in it, here's what I do know for sure, is this story is yet another pointer that God does not allow us to experience these things because he doesn't care. It's clear in this story, and it became abundantly clear on the cross, that the reason why we experience what we do is not because God is standing by and doesn't care. He answered that question for us when he died. And so I think the big life learning for us is, that as Christians, as people who follow Jesus, one, things are never gonna go the way that we expect. And that's true of anybody, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. Your life will not go the way that you think it's going to go. You have these plans and these hopes and these dreams and they will be crushed. No, um, just kidding, I'm just seeing if you're awake. Uh, No, but for real, as you go through life, you're gonna have all these dreams and all these things and they're gonna change. They may get better, they may change. You may start off going in one direction and you're like, wow, I wanna go this direction, this is better. It will not end up like you expect it to. But here's what I do know, and the story confirms it, is that things in life just aren't gonna go our way. They're not gonna go, or excuse me, go the way that we think that, um, that we expect them to. But ultimately, when we follow Jesus, we know that he's gonna work them out for our good. And I don't want this to be like this pithy little saying, like, oh, that's cute, we're Christians, and we say things like that, like, "Mm, well, Facebook that, you know, like, that's great. (laughs) No, 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 like, for real, though, is as Christians, and this has to become, and I struggle with this, this has to become a deep-rooted truth in in our lives. See, when Jesus uh, encounters this woman who is touching his garment, she comes with one set of expectations. She just wants to come and she wants to sneak in undercover. No one sees her. She doesn't want to be publicly humiliated. And so she just wants like a, like a, 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 like a, like a touch and go healing. I'll touch his cloak. I'll get out of here and I'm going to get my life back. And the expectations that she has are not at all what she receives. 
What she receives is Jesus turning around and going public and saying, hey, you, did you just touch me? Oh, this is the, this, as an outcast, this is the worst thing that she could imagine happening. You are going to publicly call me out in front of everybody and acknowledge the one thing that I'm humiliated about? And yet Jesus goes, yeah, but like, I'm going to give you even more than you expected. Because what he does here is he not only um, brings out the thing that she was so scared of, but he heals it. And then he does something even more profound. He takes this woman who has these superstitious beliefs about God and transforms her, not just physically, but spiritually as well. And see, when she walked away, she got far more than she bargained for. She expected one thing. and, And Jesus fulfilled those expectations, but in a totally different way in a much more profound way. Same thing happened with Jairus. Jairus never expected as a part of his life plan to see um, his child die. No parent would ever want that. It even makes you, it makes you, your stomach hurt just thinking about it. This was never a part of his plan. He was successful, he was well known, he had everything together, and yet his plan did not go as expected. And so he comes to Jesus and he goes, Jesus, I need you to fix this. I need you to make this better. And see, Jesus does something, again, super strange, is he doesn't just give him what he wants. He doesn't just fulfill his expectations. He fulfills them in a very strange and almost roundabout way, and then also gives him more than he bargained for. So he comes, he says, I just need you to come and to pray or do whatever you do and heal my daughter. And Jesus says, actually, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to do this thing over here that's going to make no sense to you whatsoever, probably going to frustrate you, make you pretty angry, and then I'm going to take care of you. And because of that, I'm not only going to fulfill your expectations, but I'm going to give you more than you bargained for because now you're going to know the true God. You're going to be able to enter into a relationship with me. I'm not just some prophet who has this ability to be able to heal people. Now you know who I truly am. And so as Christians, people who struggle with understanding God's timing and what he's doing, we can at least rest assured that the reason why his timing may not make sense is not because he doesn't love us. It's because he sees things that we don't see. And for me, I try to remind myself and pray and and ask God to have this sink deep into my heart as, Lord, I don't understand, I don't get it, but help me trust that you're in control and that you have my best in mind. And see, if we're able to internalize that, if we're able to make that really a part of who we are, a part of that truth sink down deep, that's going to allow us to not only make it through life, as we go through these twists and turns, but be able to thrive because we have a hope and we have an understanding that he's in control. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you so much for just this place and, um, and these people and um, the ability to come and, and wrestle with some of the hard stuff of life. Is, uh, these questions are questions that whether we believe in you or not, we're going to have to deal with. And I uh, am so thankful that you give us answers that satisfy that you give us a hope, that you give us um, a future, and ultimately that you are working things out for our good. And so, Lord God, if there's anyone in here who is right in the midst of it right now, in a storm, where they're trying to understand why certain things are happening, they just don't get it, they don't understand why you aren't showing up when they think that you should, um, I just pray that they would be able to walk away with a confidence in you and a peace, a peace beyond understanding, a peace um, that makes no sense to them or the people around them because they have this incredible assurance that you are in control. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.